Where did Bitcoin come from? Since its mysterious conception following the 2008 financial crisis, people have been trying to figure out who created it and why. Joining me on Liberty Curious is independent thinker and writer Emil Faneuf to discuss the origins of Bitcoin and its philosophical influences, including the writings of Hayek, Ayn Rand, and David Friedman. Emil writes on matters of money and cryptocurrency and has spent well over a decade working in international business development around the world. Not only do we not know what the best money should be, but in, in government monopolizing money, uh, it has also robbed us of the process in which we could discover the, the most desirable money that the public might most want. Emil explains that Hayek imagined how private enterprise could compete with the long-withstanding government monopoly on money to create better choices for the people. He draws parallels as to how Bitcoin and other digital money are examples of decentralization in the information age, and how this kind of technology has the potential to disrupt the status quo. But first, maybe we can start with going into the philosophical influences of Bitcoin. So what are some of those uh, things that influence the founder of Bitcoin and the people around that movement? Okay. Um, now, the, the couple of pieces that I wrote on uh, for AIER were loosely based and maybe expanded upon in a narrow focus of, of just part of, part of uh, a couple of previous articles, or a few articles actually that I'd written previously uh, for a blog. Um, and when I wrote those originally, at least the first two of those uh, for the blog, uh, what, I, what I was interested in at the time was to understand Satoshi Nakamoto's uh, his, his motives, right? Uh, what both who might have influenced him philosophically, economically, and what the landscape of privately issued digital currencies uh, might have already existed at the time, uh, which is to say that if they already existed, he, they might have sort of their uh, their structure, how they were built, might have influenced him in some way, right? Uh, since then, since writing those a couple blog articles years ago, um, I've I've cared less and less what Satoshi's his specific influences uh, might have been, and I, I care more about sort of the climate of ideas uh, that existed at the time that he might have borrowed by, but, but we know um, it's pretty undisputed that uh, Satoshi, whoever he was or they were, or she was, um, whoever th that person or persons uh, was were, <laughs> so many pronouns, uh, uh, um, the, there, there were there were influences at the time. It, it, it's it's pretty undisputed that uh, Satoshi was influenced or might have been a member of the Cypherpunks, which is uh, an organization of um, mostly computer techies of different sorts. Uh, some of them mathematicians, some of them computer scientists, some of them cryptographers. Where cryptography is a sort of uh, a branch of mathematics, um, where. Um, so the cypherpunks, they began uh, in the late 80s, 88, 89, somewhere around then. Uh, and uh, Timothy C. May is a key figure in this. Um, he managed the, um, the cypherpunks mailing list uh, from the late 80s I, until right around 2000, maybe 2001 or something. I, I think someone managed it for a little bit after 2001 when he sort of left. But they kind of died out. I, as far as I know, there's no... 
uh, cyberpunk mailing list official one that was, you know, uh, still, but, uh, we can, we can easily, it's a matter of historical record. Basically we, we can go and find out who, um, which economists and, and, uh, philosophers, uh, might've, or in fact did, uh, influence at least Timothy C. May, who was sort of the, the more loud, loudly spoken, uh, widely publishing within the mailing list and so on. Um, because he and some of the others were, you know, they would publish themselves. Um, they would tell us who was influencing them. So, uh, a few of the names that get brought up again and again, uh, by Timothy C. May, for example, uh, were F.A. Hayek, uh, were, um, David D. Friedman, um, the economist, also notably son of Milton Friedman, um, uh, as well as Ayn Rand. Uh, the Ayn Rand one uh, is an interesting one because Rand, um, she in, in her fictional novel, Atlas Shrugged, there was a place that, uh, I don't remember if she said it was in Colorado, but it's based on a real place, apparently. I forgot the name in real life, but uh, mm. sort of a hidden away place uh, where there's mountains surrounding it. You couldn't find it unless you just happened to be flying over it kind of thing. Um, and she uh, she pegged this this place called Galt's Gulch uh, in the novel, and so Galt's Gulch was a place where some of the more productive people of society went to sort of hide away and um, and uh, live lives that were sort of consistent with what Rand had in mind for uh, let's say a, a, a morally good life kind of kind of kind of thing, right? Uh, so and the hidden away part is important. Um, and it's relevant to the word cipher in cypherpunks. Um, cipher just meaning, um, uh, uh, just, how do you say, um, um, well, hidden, hidden again, uh, like in, in cryptography, you, in encryption, you, you have a message that's in plain text and you can convert it to cipher text. Uh, so you can s still send it in plain sight, but it's all jumbled up gibberish and, you know, someone that's able to read it can't make any sense of it. So what what uh, Timothy C. May uh, uh, suggested was that we can achieve Galt's Gulch in cyberspace with mathematics much more easily than it could ever exist in real space. That's because governments dominate real space, um, but there are certain things that you can do with cryptography uh, th and computer to computer communication that, that just make it easier to create a sort of hidden society of sorts um, in over over what we now call the internet. Right. And that and that also that community um, is more decentralized as well. Like that that's part of it too, I guess. Not in Galt's Gulch, because obviously all of these people were in the same place physically, but in the cyber world mm -hmm. that happens to be kind of more decentralized, right? That's right. The, the decentralization part is when we say decentralization um, it, in sort of the cryptocurrency world or the Bitcoin world, um, um, we're, we're talking about that either that nobody controls it. Ideally, I think the, the solid way to think of it is that nobody controls it, um, where Bitcoin fits that best uh, quite easily. It's the most decentralized that nobody, no single actor or um, uh, coll colluding parties uh, could um, could uh, take it over to their benefit and say, uh, 
the new rules are this, or the new rules are that. We're going to do this or that, and, and everyone has to follow their direction. There's, it's been tried in different ways, and uh, so far nobody's been able to uh, to be successful at that. Um, in this gulch, gulch in cyberspace that Timothy C. May was trying to achieve, and the cypherpunks were trying to uh, make a reality, um, the idea of a native digital asset um, a, what we think of a cri cryptocurrency was sort of uh, a holy grail, right? Um, mm. it, it had, um, it's not that they were the first to think of it. Um, the, the cypherpunks were influenced by a cryptographer, uh, David Chaum, uh, who published a paper on what he called eCash in 1983. Uh, but the Chaumian model was a, uh, a very centralized one um, in 1988, I think it was, he sort of launched his eCash um, in what he called DigiCash, and it was it, it existed in uh, thanks to partnerships with actual banks. So he partnered with, as I understand, or DigiCash, the company partnered with uh, Deutsche Bank in Germany, and I think Mark Twain Bank in the United States, um, and they they used something called uh, something he invented, David Chaum invented, called. Uh, blind signatures, which were which hid the transaction values and the and the times uh, from from the centralized party. So even though there was a centralized party, uh, that central party, the banks themselves, uh, couldn't see a lot of what was going on. Um, so this inspired the cypherpunks, and they moved uh, step by step towards what inevitably uh, became Bitcoin. Whether or not it was an actual cypherpunk that programmed Bitcoin, that, that the climate of ideas was there. Do you think that, uh, this is just a side note, but do you think that Satoshi Nakamoto, that pseudonym was created in a way because the thing was so powerful or was it just like, or that it had the potential to be so powerful and then if the authorities were to knew to know who that person was, then it could be dangerous for them? Or do you think that it was more just done in the idea of privacy or of being a cipher? Ah, um, so do I think that whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was uh, sort of disappeared because the idea that he launched was so powerful? Is that, is that it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, yes, that is what I think. In fact, uh, whoever the person was went to a great deal to conceal their true identity. Um, you know, I, I think always connecting over Tor, uh, the registry for, I think it was Bitcoin.org, which I think was originally, which originally belonged to him, um, is the, the domain registry. We, we don't, we don't even know who owned the, the domain and often you can just look it up or you can go and uh, governments could coerce the, um, uh, some entity to say, ah, oh, this is the organization or this is the person who, who registered it. There's all sorts of things that. Uh, that he did to hide his hide his tracks, and as I understand it, it wasn't not it wasn't long after WikiLeaks, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, something like that. WikiLeaks had been blocked by Visa and Mastercard, uh, and and people uh, on the Bitcoin talk forums uh, were celebrating the fact that uh, Julian Assange had just started accepting Bitcoin as payment. Um, one of them in the Bitcoin talk forums, uh, uh, forums said, bring it. And Satoshi replied, no, don't bring it. This is an infant um, project at this point. We don't need uh, 
uh, we don't need authorities uh, shutting us down. We'd, I'd like, I'd like it to stay low, low key until until it it uh, picks out. Um, but uh, Satoshi disappeared not long after that, and and there was another person. Uh, I think I know his name, but I don't, I don't want to say the wrong name. But there was another early early Bitcoiner that had been invited to go and talk to the CIA about how it worked. And as I understand it, he went and he told the CIA. So it was starting to get some serious attention. And so, you know, for whoever is Satoshi, it made sense to kind of disappear at that time. So, okay. So let's just say that it was the cypherpunks or people associated with them. Okay. Who, who invented Bitcoin? Let's under that assumption, we can then talk a little bit about Hayek, who was influential to those people. Right. And Hayek talking yeah. about the denationalization of currency. So this idea that governments have always monopolized currency, they've always monopolized money. And Hayek argued that the rules of competition should apply to currency as well, and that we would have better money if private enterprise could get involved and create something different, right? Right. He, he argued that um, not only do we not know what the best money is, uh, should be, but in, in government monopolizing money, he, uh, it has also robbed us of the process in which we could discover the, the most desirable money that the public might most want. So it, it has robbed us on two fronts. I think he made that point in a, um, in a, in a presentation, um, I think in 1977, a year after he, he published the denationalization of money. Um, and uh, I forget the name of that, that paper. I think it's, um, I forget the name. But anyway, Hayek makes the point that that uh, it is also robbed us of, the government has also robbed us of, of the process of discovering money in the first place. So for example, um, some people might not want a stable purchasing power. In fact, a lot of people certainly are, are willing to accept a great deal of volatility uh, if uh, over time, uh, you know, a, a, a currency or maybe eventually a money uh, has the potential to, and certainly a historical record of, of appreciating in, in, in terms of purchasing power over time, like Bitcoin. If, uh, if currencies can't compete um, side by side without government uh, discouraging competitors or outright banning competitors, uh, then, then it's much more difficult to, to discover uh, what the public might want most. Right. What the public might want. That's a very good point. Because uh, since governments have been monopolizing money for so long, the public just kind of takes that for granted. Like that's the way that it should be. And so what you get is what you get in terms of money. But now it looks like Bitcoin is revolutionizing that. And so now there is choice, right? And in the book, um, Hayek writes about how the history of money has been, you know, or the history of government money has been a history of inflation as well and of debasing the currency. So how is that different than Bitcoin or maybe other private uh, currencies that, that we could imagine? Okay. Uh, so what we have with the fiat, with the fiat system it is a discretionary monetary policy, right? What we have with Bitcoin is an algorithmic monetary policy. The, the fiat monetary system and modern day central banks, it allows for an easy confiscation uh, of, of money. Um, it, where Bitcoin, uh, alternatively, it, it, it doesn't have the discretionary monetary policy that, uh, that 
fiat does. Um, it it is a, an algorithmic monetary policy, and um, you in the in the uh, enforcing of the rules uh, of the of the algorithmic mon monetary policy itself is done in a very distributed, uh, very decentralized way with tens of thousands of nodes, uh, which are computers. They can be as cheap as uh, $200 um, that, enforce, uh, that enforce that monetary policy. So uh, you know, each of the nodes essentially act as a master ledger, um, making sure that nobody's, um, nobody's uh, spending the same coins twice, nobody's trying to change the rules, etc. Um, and the barrier, the barrier to entry being so low allows, allows, uh, well, it allows more participants and more participants just really means is embodies what we mean by decentralized where, uh, in the central banking model, uh, the master ledger is held by central banks, uh, themselves, right? The, uh, the bank of Canada, uh, the European central bank, uh, and maybe the master master. Uh, ledger would be, uh, of course, the the Federal Reserve, uh, since there's, uh, since the U.S. dollar happens to be the world's uh, reserve currency. Reserve currency, right, right, right. Um, okay, so so that is obviously a very very different system. Um, coming from a central kind of top-down mode where every decision could be made arbitrarily from the top to things right. that kind of arise spontaneously it's almost like a true unfettered market order would you say it's market in it I, my own view is it might be market in the sense that it's um that it's voluntary right um mm. yeah it, it's saying it, it's not market in the sense that someone uh someone launched bitcoin at, as part of a company and created the units out of the units uh, the monetary units, those bitcoins, out of thin air, and then sell them to other people. There are, of course, people that sell bitcoins that they obtain, um, but but uh, there's no, um, yeah, it's it's the issuance isn't done in a centralized way in the same way that um, the issue, in the same way that uh, let's say mobile phones are issued in a centralized way through a market, you know, through property rights, through market prices, and then built in a factory or. It, Put together in the final piece in the factory and then sold, um, but it, it's certainly um, a market order in the sense that it, it's voluntary and markets are, uh, in a strict sense, uh, they're a voluntary uh, set of many many transactions that take place in a distributed way. Okay, so can we maybe now look at David Friedman, Milton Friedman's son, and what were the kind of mm -hmm. influences there on the early uh, Bitcoin developers? Sure. Uh, I, I hope to make that my next AIER piece. Um, uh, so David Friedman uh, wrote uh, a book, I think he published in, in the early 70s sometime, uh, the first edition, uh, called The Machinery of Freedom. Uh, and the book uh, tries to, it, it looks historical to, to history and a number of societies to see ways in which different societies, different legal systems have existed around the world. Uh, in which different functions of government uh, have been provided uh, in the market, um, rather rather than in a very top down uh, in the way we think of it, all three branches of government being done by the same essentially the same nation state. So, um, as I understand it, 
as I recall, it's been a number of years since I've read it, but um, he, he looks at uh, uh, Islamic law. He looks at uh, Judeo, um, uh, Jewish law. He looks at Roman called gypsies. He looks at um, um, saga period Iceland. That's his, that's his main one. As I understand it, if I recall, uh, that one, it existed without a, an executive branch of government for something like 400 years. So he, he looks and sees how, whether or not um, uh, a, um, a society could exist uh, without an official government and if the essential, what we think of essential functions of government, if they could be provided on a market. So Timoth Timothy C. May, the cypherpunk who managed the, the email list, he, he cited David Friedman as one of his influenced uh, a, a few times. And as I understand from speeches uh, from David Friedman himself, um, David Friedman influenced Timothy C. May, and then Timothy C. May um, wrote about that, and then in return influenced David Friedman's own thought, uh, and David Friedman de developed these ideas further. So um, it, if you, I mean, it, I, I never read the first edition, but I, my, I imagine if I had read the first edition of The Machinery of Freedom, uh, there probably wouldn't be any mention of of uh, cryptography, right? Uh, but if David, by the time David Friedman published the third edition, actually, I don't remember if he mentioned cryptography either. I think he did in one of the later chapters, one of the newer chapters. And he certainly expanded upon it in great deal on um, societies that, that could exist in cyberspace only um, in his his book. Um, it, it escapes me now. I'm going to say that um, I, I forget now, but but it, it's one that came out in the early 2000s. You know, after the cypherpunks had sort of already concluded their their mailing list, um, and and it, I read that one. It's really good. Sorry, I can't think of it at the moment, but uh, fantastic. Ah, Future Imperfect. That's what it's called. Future Imperfect. A fantastic book. And you sort of you see the cypherpunk vibe all throughout the book. Hmm. Interesting. So, like, mm. basically, if we look mm. broadly at the cypherpunks, uh, they were kind of libertarians where they you know maybe a mixed classical liberals anarchists like a little bit of everything kind of like the best ideas from all of those uh different thinkers yes so you you see a very strong what we would call either libertarian or libertarian-esque um flavor uh to their writings um and and well they were well, they were going for crypto anarchy Right, that Timothy C. May said this explicitly. We're going for crypto anarchy, and by the time one of the attempts at a cryptocurrency called B Money came, uh, it was published by the, the the little essay, short essay about how it could work, published by um, uh, Wei Dai, an American mathematician, cryptographer, maybe. Um, in the B Money short essay, uh, he says in the very first sentence of the of the essay that that he's fascinated by timothy c may's uh idea of achieving crypto anarchy in cyberspace so you 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 know this is very libertarian in the in the very unique um anarcho-capitalist sense in which david friedman writes about it so um murray rothbard for example another promoter of anarcho-capitalism uh at, to my knowledge, at least, I've never seen anything from him where you talk about a um, a society of existing of 
sort of crypto anarchy over the internet. Uh, to to his credit, he you know he, he passed I think in the mid '90s, uh, right when the uh, the internet was starting to pick up. But um, if you look at, I have not found any mention from Timothy C. May or any other cypherpunk uh, where uh, Murray Rothbard um, was m- even mentioned at all. Where uh, David Freeman comes up again and again. So, okay, so like a, a lot of, a, because a lot of Bitcoiners often refer to Murray Rothbard, but you're saying that like maybe they weren't influenced by him at all. Um, I haven't found any mention. I, 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 I haven't read literally everything the cypherpunks have ever written, but I've tried to. I've everything I find, I go and read it, and I've never found any mention of Rothbard. Okay. But David Friedman comes up again and again. Interesting. So then, he's a very unique thinker from my point of view. <laughs> So the original is the, thinker is was Bitcoin perhaps invented as a way to disrupt the nation state? Like, was that part of the idea, mm-hmm. or was it just to have another kind of money besides fiat money, an alternative? Ah, so yes. Uh, so did whoever Satoshi was, um, did he did he launch it to uh, to launch a parallel financial system? existing as just another option um, or or did he launch it um, to sort of replace it? Um, I don't know if he, I I don't remember seeing anything about that particular ambition, the latter ambition to replace it. But um, certainly you can read right in in his, uh, he was certainly um, inspired he was certainly bothered by by the um, by the bank bailouts. So he put right in the um, in January two thousand nine. He put in into the uh, uh, the genesis block of Bitcoin uh, Chancellor on uh, second bailout for banks. Um, of course, it would have taken a long time to come up with something like Bitcoin. So I don't I don't think he just put it together last minute. The once the once the um, either American or European banks started, uh, started bailing out banks. He didn't, he didn't put it together last minute. It, it's too big of a, of a beast to put together last minute, but he certainly credited it and made it at least sort of made it look like th- that was his inspiration. Um, there are a number of other writings from Satoshi on the Bitcoin talk forums where, where he says, I'm forgetting the details now, but he, he certainly says things, uh, about, uh, how they get to, um, essentially, rob us through inflation and so on. Um, so whoever Satoshi was seems to have ha- had a uh, libertarian um, leaning, to say the least, maybe a radical one. You can't tell when you put something in the world what the outcomes are going to be either, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, right. so I, I guess that's kind of the question, you know, governments have always had a monopoly on money. Is that about to change? And And we might not know, like, if that means that you know, we will be on like just a Bitcoin standard where there will only be Bitcoin and nothing else. You know, some people do think that, but then I guess there's also a world of possibilities where it is an alternative kind of parallel system. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, The thing is, once you launch a tool, even a hammer, you know, I I imagine whoever came up with the hammer came up with it so that it could be used to, uh, puncture holes and things or something along those lines right or um but i imagine people have used hammers to murder other people um phil zimmerman who as i understand it was the person that launched the first version of pgp um like email encryption um 
I think I saw an email from Timothy May saying that Phil Zimmerman told him, May, uh, that if, if he, you know, knowing that Al-Qaeda, for example, probably or, or maybe did uh, use PGP to encrypt their emails. And so if once you launch a, a, powerful, uh, a powerful tool, such as the ability uh, to essentially um, whisper over the internet and, and for a, a message to never be able to, or at least in the foreseeable future with, with the, um, the tools we have now to do, essentially it puts a very high cost to say the least on would be, uh, people that want to sort of, um, infiltrate, penetrate, decrypt a message so that they can eavesdrop, eavesdrop it. It's a, it's a very high cost and possibly impossible, at least it, it, sometimes if you do it right, certainly usually impossible. Uh, for them to decrypt it, um, it's certainly it's certainly a risk that when you launch a tool, um, bad people can use it for nefarious things that you don't agree with. Um, I think the, the better way to look look at these things is whether they are net good or net bad. And I think that cryptography is a net good uh, for for the people of the world, right? The public, you might call them. Um, and I've seen Peter Thiel arguing this point, uh, you know, formerly with PayPal, where um, cryptography or encryption um, is a net good um, for for people, where AI is a net good um, uh, sort of for the state. Uh, it helps the state with mass surveillance and that kind of thing. Right, right, right. That's true. So, like, this technology could be used for for ill and for for good. Obviously, like any technology. So. Um, if we think then about CBDCs in that same light, here's a here's a kind of twisted question because obviously, like we've talked about all of the problems with CBDCs, right? You co coming from the public, coming from people who are aware of the dangers of that, right? Like surveillance, uh, monitoring all the transactions, being able to manipulate the money in such a way that there's like so much control. Um, on the other hand, like the people who think that CBDCs are a good thing, the central bankers and the governments who want to introduce this into the world, why why do you think they like if they have good motives? What do you think those motives are? Um, I don't. Th I have. To, I want to be general. <laughs> I don't want to just come across as a uh, dogmatic. Um, first, I have to be honest. I don't think most of those motives are are good for the rest of us. I think it's good if you want power. Um, but in the, I'm trying to be as generous as I can, but I, I struggle because I can't think of a, a way, uh, I can't, certainly, again, certainly it could be used for good. So for example, if you have a centralized ledger that only one party uh, is able to see all the transactions, Certainly, they can, since it's all happening on a, one big ledger, and they can run, you know, some computer programs, um, some spreadsheets even, uh, to uh, some AI maybe, to read lots of data, including patterns, and they might catch, in fact, I suspect that they would catch lots of people uh, engaging in, in crimes that, that um, would, would, of course, be, we would all consider horrific and things that should never be done to anyone. You know, that's a good, of course it's a good. So uh, as economists, we have to think in terms of net goods and net bads. And I suspect that would be, they would, every time, every time they caught someone doing something terrible, um, whatever the horrors of 
that that trigger people uh, that someone could possibly do such a thing. Uh, they will they will make examples of, of it. They will justify their existence. They'll get bigger budgets based on it. Um, at the moment, they can't do that to to the same extent because there there are lots of ledgers. Right, each bank has their own ledger about you know who owns what and who transfers what to whom, uh, that kind of thing. So there's there's not the same uh, the same master ledger that there would be if if uh, if there was just one big ledger in the hands of the central bank uh, and its government. I want to come back to something that actually we spoke about the other day. Um, and since we've spoken, I started reading this book, <laughs> The Revolt of the Public, right, um, by Martin Gurry. Yeah. And I thought about yeah. like how this was all connected to, if we take the example of CBDCs versus Bitcoin, um, we can apply the same example to... Uh, mass media, let's say, who would propagate the fact that CBDCs were good because they stop those crimes, right? Uh, but then you would have the media of the people, like podcasts and YouTube and videos that spread across Twitter uh, and across other platforms filmed with people's cell phones uh, of, you know, things that are going on that actually uh, were very detrimental with the CBDCs. Like, let's say, put ourselves into the future, right? And I want to kind of uh, ask you to draw out that connection there, because what Martin Gurry talks about in this book is how the age of information, like just the sheer amount of information that comes out of other places besides a central top-down kind of information apparatus that we've always had, um, is shifting our world in such a way. And, and I think that like, Bitcoin is an example of that. It's like information in the digital era, um, as opposed to central banks controlling money. Um, same thing, as I said, with media. Like, do you want to kind of uh, parse out that idea a little bit? Tell me a little bit about the book and, and what you learn from there and how it applies to all of this. Sure, sure. So just a little context for the listeners. We talked about this a little bit the other day. So, and I mentioned that it was uh, a, a particularly... Uh, influential book on me. Um, so the general thesis, if I could start with that, the general thesis of the book is, is that uh, we have 20th century institutions uh, that are not well suited for the new world, the information age. Um, and uh, whether and there are movements all over the world um, on the political movements, protests on the left, on the right, um, these days that might be manifested, let's say, on the right, um, Canadian truckers, if you want to, I mean, I think it was at least characterized as on the right, at least. Uh, characterized, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, characterized, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, on the left, you've, you've got Black Lives Matter, uh, you've got Occupy Wall Street, um, which I, I think that could be bipartisan as well, because there's a lot of cronyism going on. It's just, anyway. But with, with the left and the right, the, pro the mass protests that we see, the around the world uh was the yellow jackets in france and so on is um that both sides tend to agree that that um the power structures the um the institutions essentially the institutions that we have uh are just poorly suited um and they, they did they held up quite well in the 20th century because 
precisely because uh, the world, the public, didn't have access to the same amount of information, right? Uh, these days, you've got camera, everybody's got a camera phone. Uh, and the moment a, a politician um, does a speech and contradicts something they said um, to a previous audience, you know, the whole world knows. So, uh, or uh, it's hard to... It's hard to hide uh, marital infidelity, for example, as if you're a public figure, this kind of thing. The, the world learns pretty quickly, right? So uh, that really started, according to Mar Martin Geary, the, the author, uh, that really started to freak governments out in a major way after the Arab Spring, I think, 2010, right? When the, the, governments, the governments of the world realized um, that mass availability of information publics published by uh, sources such as WikiLeaks uh, and then and then everybody being connected to everybody else and talking about what's going on uh, in real time over social media such as Facebook that this connected public was able to um, topple governments <laughs> right uh, the public was much more informed often misinformed Right, of course. It, it, I don't. I don't. I don't believe that just literally every idea that floats around the internet in a in a more decentralized manner is is necessarily a truthful uh, thing. Right? There's wrong ideas that flow about as well. Um, but Martin Goon, he, he says he's he's um, he believes in in sort of. Uh, the Republican constitutional Republicans uh, sort of government that, that we have. So he's not, he's not suggesting uh, any, you know, some switch to some alternative system, but, um, but his conclusion is, is that, that uh, again, the, the institutions that we have are not designed well for, for the information age. That implies as well that there's this kind of um, tension that's there that hasn't been there before where, you know, there's always been kind of tensions in a way between the rulers and the public. Uh, but it presents um, more of a problem for for central authorities, and and the kind of model of centralization is is kind of crumbling in a world where technology is bringing about this kind of organic decentralization of information and you know other kinds of technologies such as Bitcoin. That's right. If you think about what the um well-informed person might have been before that sort of mid-90s when everybody started um you know at least in north america where the internet picked up through aol first and then the rest of the countries around the world tend to pick up a little bit later um a well-informed person before the mid-90s was was someone who um they, they read the new york times every morning uh, with their donut, or they read Der Spiegel or uh, Le Monde or whatever you know major newspaper of of your country was, and you know, uh, and then you didn't only read you know left of center New York Times, you also read right of center Wall Street Journal or something along those lines, right? That would, you'd be you'd be a well informed person because you followed uh, a lot of what happened in the mainstream media. Um, I mean, these days people just have a more decentralized way of getting their information. Um, one of the one of the primary ways is they go to YouTube and see camera footage that that someone recorded, you know, and it spreads like fire over the internet. Um, so if CNN or whoever says that X happened, you can go and watch the video for yourself and see whether or not X happened, and you can look at the time and date stamp and see uh, uh, if that was 
if that follows the timeline that it, it would have had to for it to be a true story in the first place kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, could you, Emil, draw any parallels there with Bitcoin versus the fiat system? Well, um, certainly the descent. Okay, so before the information age brought about by, you know, the digital revolution, if you want to think of it that way. Um, again, we had more centralized power structures, more centralized institutions where Bitcoin is just one that exists anywhere and everywhere uh, with any device connected to the internet. You can, you can um, um, participate in a protocol in the same way that you do over TCP IP because Bitcoin just happens to be uh, a protocol like TCP IP. Uh, existing at a, maybe a higher layer, a higher layer, TCP IP being here, Bitcoin can't exist without TCP IP, but they're both protocols, right? So nobody con controls them as such. Um, I, in, in the moon world that we're entering, that we're already in uh, to a great extent, the, um, not only in terms of uh, trans transporting value across space, but also ideas, um, you know, Noster, or even Mastodon, these are attempts at sort of replacing the, the centralized institutions like Twitter, even though Twitter is, of course, very centralized in the sense that, it, you know, your information exists on a company's servers and are, of course, shared with governments. But, um, but of course, Twitter tries to be a um, public square. Um, we're Mastodon, we're the Mastodon and, and, um, and most of models allow free speech through a much more decentralized means. And I think there's a big push. The more, the more governments and the central banks uh, see the, the way that the masses, the public, pushes towards more decentralized models, the more they respond and say, oh, we can achieve those things in a better way uh, in a more centralized model. Uh, so to give just one example, um, Bitcoiners will often uh, talk about uh, how it allows you to sort essentially bank the unbanked, right? Not not that you not that participating in the Bitcoin network actually banks you. There there is no bank, uh, but but it, it, um, it it's very it's it's highly it's the most egalitarian structure that you could come up with, right? You can just participate, and as long as you have a private key, you can spend the Bitcoin, right? It's in a permissionless way. There there are no gatekeepers, right? Um, and the if you pay attention to the uh, the political um, arguments given by people promoting CBDCs, they talk about banking the unbanked. So they, they use the same kind of lingo that Bitcoiners do to promote a very the, the most decentralized monetary system that's ever existed. And, and the, the central bankers, the Bank of International Settlements, they talk about uh, it, it can be it can be bank the unbanked, you know, all this stuff. But but they're promoting the opposite model it's highly centralized and, and it would allow them and they always say oh, i wouldn't do that but it, it would allow them it, technically um to be able to censor people right you have you have to trust that they're not going to censor people so uh the implications are quite the opposite of bitcoin but they but they make sure because they, they notice that if you say things like banking the unbanked that it has a really nice feeling so they make sure to a late right it's their CBDCs, for example, are a very top-down way to innovate, right? 
I think in their own way, I don't think they're all nefarious. I think they want, some of them want to do actual good, right? I, I'm, I'm being, trying to be generous, right? Trying to be as realistic as possible. I don't, I want to assume, uh, uh, bad intentions necessarily, even though I suspect there are, there's a lot of that. <laughs> um, but they, yeah, they borrow the same open language, the, the same, um, yeah. Yeah. The point. yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And that's, that is kind of what I was looking for because it does tie those two things in together. Like really like information, uh, and a monetary system are kind of inextricably linked, right? Like if you have a monetary system, which suppresses people and censors people like via CBDC, like the BIS has said it would be absolute control. Those were, you know, the words, yeah. absolute control. So that means, like, that's how it's connected, is that we are in this kind of information era, uh, which is driven by digital technology. And that, you know, trickles out into money as well. But on the other hand, you have this increasing kind of um, push for more and more centralization. And that absolute control means that if you say the wrong things, then you also will not have access to your money uh, if that if that is played out to the point of absolute control. And Martin Gurry points to that in this book, The Revolt of the Public, um, because yeah. you can't have dissent in that kind of system, right? Like if right now we're seeing that struggle between the old world and the new world in a sense, and in the old world, you can't have a dissent. Like the, the opinion has to come from the top. And if you have a different opinion, well, that that's that's just not allowed that's right that's right so that's not to say that they will necessarily censor but i don't know how they would resist i don't know how they would come up with the the resistance to censor once they have that kind of control uh and i, I don't buy that oh well this is a democracy so that's how we know it won't i mean um you can look at op operation choke point that took place in the, the latter part of the Obama administration. And if you were engaged in perfectly legal activities, such as manufacturing guns, which is perfectly mm -hmm. legal uh, uh, thing to do in the United States, uh, it's regulated, but it's legal. Um, if you if you were a um, payday lender or a whole host of other things, uh, they, they censored you not, they didn't infringe any constitutional rights, to my knowledge, by saying you can't say that or shut up or, or what, what have you, and they didn't take your business license away, to my knowledge. Uh, what they did was they went and uh, talked to the banks and said, hey, wh why are you banking portal owners? Why are you banking gun manufacturers? How do you think that looks for you? Uh, you know, do you, do you feel responsible for that school shooting over there? That, these kinds of things. Uh, if you're, you're, you're a, an enabler, you know. Uh, so they, the, while Bitcoiners want to bank the unbanked, so to speak, um, governments seem highly interested in unbanking the banked, right? They find people who are banked, who they don't want to be banked, who they who, who they, they don't think should have all the same rights as the rest of us, and they work hard to make sure that those institutions or those people are unbanked. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And you just brought up Choke Point, and there's Choke Point 2.0 that we see playing out right now. The yeah. same thing with the crypto yeah. industry, right? So that's that's a really yeah. good point, Emil. So I guess on some some kind of final thoughts here, I wanted to ask you then, like with all of this in mind, um, how do you think that this whole thing, this whole struggle 
is going to play out both between, you know, Bitcoin and fiat money or CBDCs and between um, free information and kind of uh, people self-publishing and authorities trying to kind of crack down on free speech. We've seen that as well with the Twitter, Twitter files and other things like that. Um, so as I said, like the, the overarching theme being that uh, there's an increased push to like uh, to to maintain the grip of central top-down control. And at the same time, there's a resistance against that. Like, how do you think that will play out? What do you think it will look like in the short term, uh, the medium term and the long term? Predictions. Yeah, I, I I do suspect there will be a lot of turmoil. I suspect there will be a lot of uh, difficult times ahead. Um, there's a newer newish book uh, by Ray Dalio uh, called Principles of Navigating the New World Order, and one of the things he he looks at empirically to the previous empires all the way up to the present empire, the U.S. Um, and he looks at sort of a what essentially looks like a bell curve, right? And and here's here's the rise of a of a uh, an empire and then the decline. And there's various ways that you can measure this. And um, at the moment, the U.S. is in stage five of six stages. And once you reach this stage, there's a lot of um, uh, you go and you uh, governments historically have always done the same thing. That you begin you begin your empire with hard money. And by the time you're down here, you're in soft money, uh, essentially paper. You're debasing in your own way depending on the, the historical time in which your empire exists right uh and once you reach stage five stage stage six where we are um you for pe for people that try to you know the more productive people in society that that ho hold capital we try to move it out of the country uh one of the things you do is you you accuse them of being uh um uh was the opposite of patriot you accuse them of doing uh you accuse them of of uh, not caring about the the motherland uh you you, you seize assets that kind of thing I, I think there's probably all sorts of this uh kind of thing that's going to happen uh there's yet another book that i highly recommend called the sovereign individual uh which looks at uh societies uh, uh sorry, sorry sorry the um uh diff different um levels of of um of uh societies essentially right uh so in you had christendom in the 1490s the catholic church was at the the height of its power um 1517 martin luther he uh published the the 95 theses on on the church um door and, and it was you know he wasn't the first person to stand up to the catholic church um what helped him was was that when by the time he did it uh there were uh, the, the Gutenberg printing press had already been invented, um, had made, had been used in, in Europe, and so the idea spread widely. And by the time he translated a uh, German uh, translation of of the Bible, uh, it it spread widely as well, and people were able to go up to the Catholic Church and say, um, "What you're saying was in this Latin version of the Bible that I could never read." Uh, is in fact not what is actually in the Bible. I know because now it's in my own common language that, that <laughs> I can read it for myself and you're lying to me. Right. Um, so uh, Christendom did not very well. Uh, these days you can, you can, even if you live next to the Vatican, you can, you can say things that are highly offensive to the Catholic Church and they, nothing happens to you. So it will, the, the printing press... Eventually, it wasn't until the end of the, the Thirty Years' War, I think, in 1640, where 
we sort of had a conclusion of sorts. Um, the printing press in the long run, it was in the long run uh, that gave us a separation of church and state. Uh, I think it might be ambitious, but I think in a best case scenario, <laughs> from my point of view, uh, different people from might, might disagree depending on your values and so on. Uh, but in my view, uh, a best case scenario in the long run, at least, uh, for the ability for a connected public to transport value in a permissionless way all around the world uh, could... If, eventually lead to uh, a separation of money and state, perhaps economy and state. Economy and state might be difficult because governments, uh, because a lot of what happens on the economy happens in rural space and governments dominate that space. But certainly uh, the ability, certainly a a separation of money and state. Again, that's my ambitious uh, view, but um, it would be nice to realize something like that in the long run. Well, that's really interesting, Emil. And I mean, I, I, I recall reading in Hayek's Denationalization of Money, he said, uh, we shouldn't stop thinking about things or studying them or imagining them just because we think that they're not politically possible now. And right. so, right, right. He w- and he was writing that book and he didn't think what Bitcoin would look like. He didn't think of Bitcoin or imagine that kind of money, but he did imagine uh, the denationalization of currency being a possibility, right? So that's, you know, just to highlight what you just said there. I mean, uh, that's a really interesting prediction. And then finally, I wanted to know um, what you think that individuals can do kind of through this period, which might be tumultuous. Like what what can you do to actually have freedom in your own life, no matter what goes on in the outside world? Sure. Um yeah, I, it's very, to be honest, you know, I, I used to be sort of a rational optimist, uh, still am, uh, inspired by people like Steven Pinker, um, Johan Norberg, uh, Matt Riley, people like this who look at that and say, look, the world's getting better in really important ways. And I still hold that view. Um, however, I do see things going uh, seemingly really dark, and I think the the, the powers that have been given uh, to governments uh, around the world uh, using COVID as the latest crisis uh, to justify that enormous power grab, uh, I think those are probably here to stay, uh, or um, not all of them, but a lot of them, and it might be just a, a matter of scale, not in kind, um, sort of ratchet effect after a crisis government's always caught. So the, the way, the way that here's the thing, given that nation states, contr- especially because they control real space, um, I think the best, from my point of view, the best way to, um, depends on, here's the thing, some people want to be, some people would prepare and, and they'll be um, a prepper, right? They want, they want their water tanks, they're physically situated, they're happy with it. They want to stay where they live, right? They want their own solar panels. They want years and years worth of uh, shelf-stable food or durable food and so on. That's one way, and I think that's just fine. Um, and they might stock up on guns or that kind of thing. My own way is geared towards exit. Uh, it's foot voting, right? So if things are going really bad where I am, uh, just like they were in New Zealand, I fled New Zealand like a refugee after enduring the COVID regime for a year and a half, uh, and I came to Bureau where it's the government's too much of a mess to be able to enforce such things, and people have a uh, people have a uh, general distrust for 
a very healthy, I think, distress for uh, for government. So it's a good place to run to in my case. Um, foot learning. It's all, in my view, it's all about uh, acquiring permanent residencies. It's all about acquiring citizenships, additional permanent residencies, additional citizenships, uh, permission to and ultimately with bank accounts, even if you don't have a lot of money, a lot of assets, at least having a bank account allows you to move money if things run downhill. I think the best way that people that are willing to move in the new world is 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 this. It's anti-fragility through um, um, through willingness to adapt your lifestyle, learn languages, make sure your kids learn languages, and the rest of it. That's awesome. Awesome advice. Um, so Emil, uh, I would love to talk to you more in the future. You have some very, very interesting perspectives. No so thank you for, for joining me here on Liberty Curious. Um, people can follow you on Twitter, Emil Faneuf. Uh, they can read your work at AIR.org and on your website, emilfaneuf.com. Um, is there anything that I'm missing there? No, that's it. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you so much. And uh, please, to everybody who listened, I want to let you know, thanks so much for being here as well. I hope that you enjoyed this discussion. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts. So write your comments below. Uh, if there are things that interested you here, if there are things you agreed with, disagreed with, would love to hear what you think. And uh, thank you so much, everyone, for being here. And thanks again, Emil. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. <laughs>